Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Lord God, your word is amazing. Uh, there's so much in it that uh, we uh, we don't understand. We ask that you'd be here this morning to illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Help us to learn everything you have for us today. Be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Quick program announcements. Uh, one or two. We um, are only working with one camera today because Dr. Bob isn't here. So it's going to be relatively simple. But that means the camera is only on me all the time. So usually when you're speaking or asking a question, making a comment, the camera will, will have a camera on you. And then for the Zoom people or later on YouTube, you'll be on the video. But not today. So if you say something, if you want to use your question, please identify yourself, say your name. You might assume everyone knows my voice. I no need to do that, but for posterity, please kind of announce your name and we'll go from there. Uh, but it'd be a relatively simple format today. So today we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And let's dive right in. And Rex, if you could read for me from the screen, we need to get you a microphone. The Professor's Delusionment. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? All things are wearisome, more than one can say. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Okay, thanks, Rex. Bright and cheerful. Here's, here's what we're going to do today. Um, quick overview of, of uh, what we'll talk about. We'll talk about Ecclesiastes basically in three sections. We'll talk about the professor's disillusionment. And by the way, uh, your version might call him the teacher, might call him the preacher. Uh, some versions say the, the professor. I'm going to stick with professor. Uh, most people think that the author of the book is Solomon. He doesn't self-identify as Solomon, but he does say, I was king in Jerusalem, son of David, filled with wisdom. Most people say, yeah, that's Solomon. So actually the church is, there hasn't been that much dispute about the authorship. But I'll call him Solomon or the professor. That first section will kind of be an overview of the whole book. And then we'll talk about, uh, in section B, the professor's attempts to find meaning in three ways. Achievement, causes, and pleasure. Talk about each of those. And then the professor's exciting conclusion. And then we'll break at that point. And if I go straight through, through those three sections, that will be less than an hour, probably. Which leaves lots of time at the end for questions, comments, conversation, all that stuff. But then I do want to spend about five minutes, and probably not much more than that, on Song of Solomon. Just a few minutes on that. And if they really have a lot of time, I've got an appendix here. There's a bunch of uh, nuggets of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, things that just sound like Proverbs, some of which are interesting, some of which are hard to understand. And I've got a few of those. We could talk about those, too. So we'll see how it goes. The professor's disillusionment. If you know one factoid about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's probably this, that the phrase, the phrase that keeps coming up in this book is under the sun. But if you didn't know that, and you were reading Ecclesiastes for the first time this week, and you've never read Ecclesiastes before, you probably read through it and said, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? It says life is meaningless, life is pointless, death ends everything. 
human beings are no different than animals. It's, it's like, it seems antithetical to everything else that's in the Bible. You might think then you'd be right. It seems like it's the opposite of what's in the Bible. So the key, of course, and I probably most of you have heard this, is the phrase under the sun, which I think appears in this book 37 times and nowhere else in the Bible. And of course, what that means is that the author is looking at things under the sun, without the heavenlies, as if there's no supernatural. All we have is a natural world. And then say, if that's the case, how do we make sense of this world? How do we find meaning in this world? Uh, and then, of course, his conclusion is, well, in that case, there is no meaning in this world. So I think that's very helpful. And that really helps understand the book. And you say, ah, OK, now that I know that, I can understand the book because it's this perspective other than uh, the rest of the Bible, which, of course, uh, assumes that uh, God exists and, and all the rest. And that's what makes this book different. But that's that's a good explanation. But it's a little bit a little bit unsatisfactory because this book is not like the book of Esther, where God isn't mentioned at all. The author of Ecclesiastes mentions God again and again and again, sprinkled throughout the book. And so you say, OK, so it's not like he doesn't believe in God. He does believe in God. But then he talks as if there is no God. So people say, well, how do you make sense of that? And one of the ways that commentators have made sense of that is they say, well, it's like it's like a play. It's like a one man show where he takes the role of the professor to say, well, what would the world look like if there was no God? So I was just looking under the sun. Oh, it's all meaningless. And then he steps aside like a narrator in a play, breaks character, steps aside, and says, you do know you have to keep God's commandments, right? And he goes back into character. Oh, it's all meaningless. Oh, but of course, you know, obeying God is really important. And, and the analogy that I think helps me is if you think of this under the sun thing, let me give you a metaphor that's close to that. Shouldn't be hard here in Northeast Ohio. Think of a, think of cloud cover. Think of a sheet of gray overcast. And Solomon is like someone flying below that sheet of overcast saying, I'm going to explain this world completely under the overcast and look at what I see, just this natural world with no supernatural, no heavenlies whatsoever. But then every once in a while, he comes above the clouds and looks up and makes a comment that he flies below the clouds. And that's actually kind of what makes Ecclesiastes exciting, challenging, difficult, but fun to read and understand because he's constantly flying above and below the clouds. So, Ray, you have this verse in Ecclesiastes Three, let's get a microphone. To... So just, just read verse 17. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Okay, so he's above the clouds, right? And that's and that's that verse, chapter three, verse 17, loaded with supernatural meaning. There's a God. This God has a moral code. That moral code applies to all creation, whether whether you know about it or agree with it or not. God will judge everybody, presumably in an afterlife. I mean, there's a lot of meaning in there. That's that's chapter three, verse 17 above the clouds. Now read 18. Very next verse. I also thought as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Keep going. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. Right, right. So he's doing so well, <laughs> flying above the clouds, talking about God, the stupid God, the judgment, all this, and then right below the clouds saying, ah, oh, we're just like the animals. There's no difference. It's all meaningless. So what? So he's here. Let me click this button here. He's a narrator breaking character. He's coming up above the clouds from time to time. And so when you look at this book, I think the best thing we'll do, and we'll do a little of this today, 
you say, how do I understand that? Because above the clouds and below the clouds, you have to interpret scripture with scripture to make sense of it, to really interpret it. We'll try, we'll try some of that today. So that's the key to the book. The thrust of the book is the impossibility of optimistic secularism. And you might say that this book, it may be the most relevant book in the Bible for our times, because for most of human civilization, most of human history, civilizations generally have been built around a coherent view of the supernatural, a shared view, a shared religion. It, it, whatever little civilization it was, people had a common worldview, and we're trying something different in Western society. We're trying a, a, a completely pluralistic worldview that says no one knows, and it's increasingly secularized. So people will say, I'm a hard and fast atheist. I do not believe in God. Not many say that, but some definitely do. Others will say, well, I'm agnostic. Who knows? Who cares? But functionally, I live as if there's no God, because who can know? But increasingly, we live in a society that says our origin was a complete evolutionary accident. Our destiny is dust, death. But at the same time, there's so much to live for. We should be optimistic. <laughs> we should change the planet and make it a better place for this next generation. We got to care about these things. And we got to look on the, always look on the bright side of life. And Solomon, the thrust of this book is to say, boy, you really haven't thought this through, have you? <laughs> Those are two completely incompatible beliefs. If you really believed in a secular mindset, if you really believed and thought that through, what the, under the sun, right? There's no, there's no supernatural. This is it. Your origin is just an evolutionary accident. Your de destiny is dust. If that's really true, that your only logical conclusion is utter and total despair. In fact, Pat and I were just talking about this. These French, the only people, the philosophy group that really, really thought this through were the existentialists in the mid-20th century. And the existentialists really thought this through, and they said, look, there is nothing out there. There is nothing. In that case, there's no morality. There's no hope. There is nothing out there. Get used to it. And, and one of them said, if that's true, the only logical conclusion of all philosophy is suicide. Because life is hard. Why go on? Why do it at all? That's logical thinking. It's not right, but it's logical thinking. But most people don't do that. They hold, everyone around us holds two completely incompatible beliefs. They'll say, oh, yeah, it's all, it's just, this only this natural world, but I'm filled with hope for tomorrow. But Solomon says, think this through with me. That does not work. That does not compute. That's the thrust of the book. That's the thrust. The gift of the book is disillusionment. The gift of the book is disillusionment. So traditionally, if you have a non-Christian neighbor or friend that gets interested in spiritual things, you would hand them, they say, I'm, I'm curious about these things. You say, well, you know what? Let me just read the book of John. You hand them the book of John. And for centuries, we've done this as Christians. You say, just read the book of John and we'll come back and talk about it. That's a really good place to start. I highly recommend that. Let's just read a chapter. Let's get together and talk about that. Read the next chapter. Let's get together and talk about that. And the word of God will speak. But you might say a more a relevant book for today is Ecclesiastes, because the gift of Ecclesiastes is disillusionment. Or you say someone could read it. You would hope that it would go like this. They would read this and say, you're right. This is the right. There is my life is pointless. There is no without God. My life is hopeless. And that they would turn to you as a believer and say, why don't you give me a reason for the hope that resides inside you? And you will be able to lead them to saving faith in Christ. So Ecclesiastes is so relevant for today. Uh, and that gift of Ecclesiastes is disillusionment. The gift for the non-Christian. So the Holy Spirit could use that. But 
if we stop right there, you will think the book of Ecclesiastes is really great for someone else. And there's a danger in that. You'll be like, uh, it's an old German joke my mom used to tell. And it was said, this little old lady leaves church. And her husband says, how did you like the sermon? And she says, oh, it was excellent. And he says, why? Why did you like it? And she said, I was so glad Frau Schmidt was here to hear that today. She really gave it to her. And that's kind of what we do. Right? You go to church, this is a powerful sermon. It's a powerful book. I'm so glad someone else can learn from this. But there's so much in Ecclesiastes for us. So I'm going to linger on this point for a little bit before we go on to the other points. Because if we don't get this right, you'll think it's irrelevant. I want to show you how it's relevant to us. You can be a Christian, you can be a believer, you can be a true believer and still think your life stinks. You still say, well, you know, life just didn't work out for me. Life worked out for other people, but not for me. And you could do that, you could do that a couple of different distinct ways. I just thought of a couple. One is just sheer jealousy. You could say, well, you know, Lord, I've been following you all these years. How come, look at that house. How did they get that house? Look at the car, he, look at the car he's driving. How much does that car cost? I can't afford that car. What the heck? You, you can just be sheer jealousy, sheer envy, right? That's, that's just one. And by the way, it's not just physical things. You could say, how come their marriage seems so healthy? Look at their kids. Their kids turned out great. Lord, we've been following you all this time. We've been praying about our kids all this time. What happened? You could sit there and say, life stinks. That's pure jealousy. Or maybe it's not jealousy. Here's another one. I got this from the Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. Glory Days. A lot of wisdom in that from, from Bruce. He's talking about, he starts off talking about a friend in high school, talks about his high school, he was a baseball player in high school and how great that was, right? So you could say, oh, you're talking about those days going by. It was so great back then. It doesn't have to be that, just talking about high school days. You could say, look, life was great until I got fired. Well, life was great until my wife left me. Right? Life was great until I had all this back pain. You, there's all kinds of ways to say life used to be great. It was fine. I wasn't complaining. Life stinks now. So you could do jealousy. You could do glory days. Here's another one. This is not glory days. It's brush with glory. Almost had it. We almost, didn't we almost have it all? Came close. So close. Brush with glory. So I'll tell you a story of my own. Confessionally, when I was uh, working in New York as a much younger man, I had a job offer to be an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And well, that may mean nothing to you, but to go, in my finance world, Goldman Sachs is like the center of the universe. That is like you played uh, uh, Little League your whole life, and now you got the offer to pitch for your favorite baseball team. Like, that's it. I turned him down. And for years, I'm okay now, but for years, look, praise the Lord for what he saved me from, right? I'm, I'm enough of a jerk as it is, right? Praise the Lord. But, but for years, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm, this is not hyperbole, not exaggerating. I'd wake up. Sometimes I would sit upright, and I'd say, my God, my God, what did I have done? What did I do? Who turns down an offer from Goldman Sachs? What kind of idiot <laughs> turns down an offer? That's like saying, you know, anyway. So I've told that story uh, again and again to just because it's so painful. And what I found was I thought what I thought was my little personal hell is really much more common than I thought. 
And I've talked to, I have had so many conversations with men who say, oh yeah, me too. Came so close, almost. I played golf with a guy who almost went pro. I mean, almost PGA Tour pro. His golf game is astonishing. He, he, he's every par five he's on and on and two. It's a shot. Maybe you guys all, you, that's the way you guys all golf. You're like, yeah, who does it? But I was like, oh my gosh, again, not again. That's incredible. And I'm like smiling, look over at him, angry. And I know what he's thinking because we've talked about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. Yeah, I'm on in two, but I have a 20 foot putt. Not good enough. Like, I would kill for that. Right? Not good enough. So close, so close, so close. It just eats at him. Just has so many conversations I have with men who are like this. And I thought, like I said, I thought it was kind of a unique experience. I think it's a much more common experience than I thought. There's a poem in the late 1800s. You probably don't know the title. It's, it's, it's an obscure poem. It's called The House of Life. The title isn't that famous, but the first line is. The first line says, look in my face. My name is might have been. Might have been. Might have been. There's actually a uh, Paul Simon song that picks up on this. It says, a bad day is when she lies in bed and thinks of things that might have been. What might have been? There's a fast forward, that was in the late 1800s. Fast forward 100 years, there's a rock song, kind of an obscure rock song, rock and roll song in the 1990s called Nothing Man. And in Nothing Man, the chorus says, isn't it something, Nothing Man? And the singer says, walks on his own with thoughts he can't help thinking. Futures evolve. But in the past, he's slow and sinking. And the killer line in the song says, caught a bolt of lightning. First, the day he let it go. That's might have been. That's, do you ever look in the mirror and say, ah, what's, what might have been in life? What I almost had. So you could say, what other, I, I, jealousy. I want what other people have. Glory days. I want what I used to have. Rush with glory. I want what I almost had. Right? Now, this is why I'm lingering on this point. As Christians, we say, Christ is my satisfaction. Christ is my everything. Jesus is my all in all. Jesus is all I need. Yeah, my life stinks. My life stinks. Why don't, why, don't I, why don't I have what they have? You see, if you start in any sense, you start, you say, if only, if only, if only, if only I had what they have, if only I had what I used to have, if only I had what I almost had, life would be great. But my life stinks. As a Christian, as a believer. And here's another thing. You so see, you fill in the blank with anything. If only I had that, fill in the blank. It's probably different for all of us, but fill in the blank. Here's another one. I'm sure this doesn't apply to anyone in this room or on Zoom. But I, we all know men who would feel this way. If only I had an endless stream of lovers <laughs> at my disposal 24-7 my entire adult life, then life would be great. Whatever you fill in the blank with, Solomon is here screaming at us through the centuries to say, oh, no, it wouldn't. You say, oh, my life would be meaningful. If only I had that, my life would be meaningful. Solomon says, oh, no, it wouldn't be. You say, if only I had that life, would be, I'd be fulfilled. Oh, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Solomon, is so, Solomon isn't just talking to the non-believers saying, you should be disillusioned with your life. He's talking to us. And what he's saying is, that thing that you think 
you wish you had, you say, if only that thing, it will not do for you what you think it will do for you. It will not. So then he says that. And then we say, how does he know? How does he know? Maybe he's just a, you know, maybe he's just some kind of like philosophy professor, like some French philosophy professor all dressed in black, sitting at some cafe, drinking espresso, smoking a cigarette on one of those sticks, like in the movies, saying, oh. but sitting there in some cafe saying, life, she is dark. No. Yeah. So he's just some dark professor saying, oh, he's all dismal and down on life. He's saying, hey, lighten up, right? That seems like, you know, lots of people have said that. But here's the thing. The professor is not just a professor. He is he's not the, just a great professor. He's not the ultimate professor. He's the ultimate adjunct professor. The ad, you know, the adjunct professor is that someone who works during the day and teaches the class at night. Someone has lived it out. And Solomon says there are basically three paths. All of you are on. You're all on three paths to find meaning in life. One of these three, you're either going to live an achievement-based life, a cause-based life, or a pleasure-based life. Those are, you're on one of those three paths. And I, as Solomon, as almost uniquely in all human history, I have reached the end of all three paths. Experientially, I've done it, and I'm here to report back to you. So this construct of these three things, just like a couple other things uh, in this talk today, I've got from Tim Keller. Tim Keller has nine sermons on the book of Ecclesiastes. And when he preached this one, I was actually attending his church in New York City. I remember where I was sitting in the, in the church, in the pew, when I heard him say this. And I said, right away, I said, I know where that is. Geographically, I know where that is. And I had this association in my mind with each of these ways of living life with three different cities in which I have lived. So, no particular order, just in case it helps you remember these three things. Cause-based life, that's D.C., Washington, D.C. We lived in D.C. for six years. Everyone in D.C. is there for a cause. You're here for your cause. You say, my team is in power. we got to stay in power. My team's out of power. We get back to power. If we don't get back in power, the world's going to end. Everyone is there fighting for their cause, fighting for their cause. D.C., and not just elections, not just politics. Every other cause imaginable. Every other cause under the sun. When my wife and I were there, we knew another couple. The woman of that couple worked for the, I think it was called the National Can Association. What do you think their cause was? <laughs> cans. Food. Just cans. Any, cans of any time. Their, their reason for existing was to get people to stop using bottles and instead use more cans. Push the cans. And even she thought, well, that's kind of silly. She said, it's a job, you know, but that, that, that's where they're there. They're, they're there for cans, right? Fighting for their cause, just like everybody else in D.C. Now, in... New York, that's an achievement-based life. They just laugh at all that stuff. Yeah, I can keep all those causes. In D.C., Election Day was like game day. The local news is covering it. Everyone's talking about it. The city's a buzz. It's there. The local universities, the students have watch parties late night to watch the election results. It's like game day. Exciting. New York, when New York says like, you're like, you know, I don't care. Republican, Democrat, how do I trade? How do I play that? You know, my long equities and my short rotate into fixed income, come out of consumer durables, go into the finance sector. Is it good for deal flow, bad for deal flow? Who cares? New York is like that. New York has always been that way. You can keep your causes. So if you come from D.C., you say, don't you care? Don't you care about these causes? And they say, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm long cans and I'm short bottles, whatever. It's fine. I don't know. Whatever. So how do I make money on this? How do I make money? When I was in D.C., I, was, I worked one street over from Constitution Avenue. I'd walk to the Lincoln Memorial at lunch. And you see the presidential helicopter flying over it. And, you know, I think it's called Marine One. You're like, wow, look at that. That's the president. Look at that. That's so cool. Look at that. That's the president. That's so cool. 
When I was in New York, people say, oh, the president's a blankety blank president in town again. Yeah, Fifth Avenue's all gummed up. It's a yeah, blank, blankety blank office. Just, it's not a cause-based city. It's an achievement-based city. Now, the, there's another city that laughs at both of them, and that's LA. Why, why do you guys are both crazy? You're working far too hard. Go to the beach, lighten up, get tanned and relaxed, have a good time. What's the matter with you people? And by the way, it's cold where you live. Why do you live there at all? You should feel good all the time. Um, but that's LA, pleasure-based life, right? So use those three cities if it helps you remember these three points. But let's take each one of these in turn. Actually, I'm not going to take each one. I'm going to take achievement and cause together because the dynamics are relatively the same. Rex, I need you to read again from the screen if you can. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So I accomplished great things, greater than anyone before me. Silver and gold, all kinds of things, right? But also great causes. I built parks, great public works, care about the people. I'm a great king, care about the people, but also maybe become very extremely wealthy. Achievement-based life, cause-based life, all together in one. Now, what can we learn from that? What he is saying is you are all on one of these three paths. You think that no matter which of those three paths you're on, you think the solution in my life to make my life meaningful is to go further down the path I'm on. I've achieved a lot, but I need to achieve more. They asked Rockefeller, famous quote, you probably, many of you have heard. He said, how many millions does it take for you to be satisfied? He said, the next one. I need to go further down the path I'm on. That's what I need. And his basic message in the book is to say the path itself is flawed. It's not that you need to go further down the path you're on. You're on the wrong path. And so you say, well, okay, but what's wrong with achievement and causes? I should achieve things in life, right? I still want to achieve some things, right? And there are lots of good causes to fight for. You know, things that are important, should I just ignore all that? He's, he's saying, no, he's not saying that. He's not saying don't do it at all. He's not saying cut it out. What he's saying is they fail as an organizing principle for life. It fails as a reason for living. And they fail on their own terms. They don't fail on your terms. They don't fail on my terms. They fail on their own terms. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to look at something someone else is living for. And they're living for achievement. They say, you're crazy. You're just stupid. You know, you know the definition of stupid? Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Stupid. Cans? You're living for cans? Stupid. I wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. Who do, you, you gave your life to that. So it's very easy for us to look at what someone else is achieving, the cause someone else is living for, and just think it's stupid. Solomon is not saying, look, when it comes to achievement and causes, you need to be really discerning. You need to use your wisdom because some causes are not worth living for, but other causes are really significant. And achievement, you know, there's some things you can waste your time on, but if you use your wisdom properly, you'll only give your life to the right kind of achievement. No, 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 no. He's not saying that at all. He's saying you can do the best causes, the best achievement, the whole thing, all in its totality. It's all meaningless. 
if you use it as a way to look for meaning in life and base your life on that, not discerning between good and bad is that if you base your life on it, it's all meaningless. Now, why is that? Why do they fail as an organizing principle for life? Death. Death. Basically death. He said, because you can achieve all kinds of things. Inevitably, you're going to die. There's a passage where he said, you're going to hand it off to somebody else. You don't know if that person is wise or a fool. You know, you could do all the estate planning you want, and your the next generation just squander the wealth. Right. Uh, and by the way, that fool, if they are a fool, will be completely forgotten. They'll forget you. And then the fool will come along. The next generation will forget the fool. And that generation that forgot them, they'll be forgotten, too. And what he's leading towards is that ultimately the human race will peter out and it'll all be forgotten. The whole thing is meaningless. And, and this is the key. It's all. Again, this is a point right from Keller. Keller points this out. And he dwells on it a while. He said, he says, the thing you miss if you read it is the word all keeps coming up. So, for example, in chapter one, verse 14, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless at chasing after wind. So most of us are so caught up in the daily grind of life. You can't step back and look at the whole picture. And Solomon's stepping back and looking at the whole picture. So if I say to you, why do you, why do you work? Well, I have to pay the mortgage. Or why do you pay the mortgage? So I can have a place to sleep. Why do you have, need a place to sleep? So I can be well rested. Why do you need to be well rested? So I can go to work. And it all becomes circular. There's an image straight from, from Keller's sermon. I'll, I'll use it, but he uses this in his sermon. He says, there's an old cartoon where someone is building a pile of rocks in the middle of the road. And on that lot, pile of rocks, they have placed a lantern. And, they, and someone comes up and says, what's the, what's the pile of rocks for? And he says, oh, that's, that's easy. I need a place to put the lantern. Yeah. Okay, what's the lantern for? Well, I got to put a lantern up there so the, the cars don't run into the pile of rocks. That's actually the book of Ecclesiastes in one cartoon. You can say, you might think every one element of your life makes perfect sense. Well, I have to do this and I have to do this. And, I, and if I don't fight for this cause, I see it's helping these other people over here. And Solomon says, well, the whole thing, the whole human race, all together under the sun, it's pointless. The whole thing is pointless. The rocks and the lantern together are pointless. Yeah, each one of them makes sense in isolation, but together the whole thing is just meaningless and pointless if there's no God. So. You say, well, but I still, I still move participating in causes and I still want to achieve some things in life. How do I know that it's gone too far? Very simple test. If I ask you, how do you know your life is worthwhile? How do you know? Look, say, this is not written down anywhere, but in, in tradition, people think that Solomon wrote Song of Songs when he was a young man filled with passion. And then he wrote Proverbs in middle age. When he said, look, I've been around a while. I've learned some things. I'm going to write these down. I can, I, I can teach you a few things about how to live. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was an older man, looking back and saying, what was all that for? <laughs> so it's a book really for people that are older in life, looking back and saying, what, what is it that I look to to say my life has been worthwhile? And if I ask you that, if you, if you fill in the blank with anything, you say, well, you know, I... I really work to plant this church. I build this school. And I've left a legacy with my kids. Anything you're talking about that I achieved or a cause I was part of, you know, the right answer for all of us, right? If I, if I ask as a Christian, the right answer for all of us is obvious. If I ask you, how do you know your life is worthwhile? The right answer is Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's enough. That makes my life worthwhile. I don't need to look at all those other things. And as Christians, we can do that. And I think that there's just, just Christian confusion about this. This particular Christian confusion, confusion about achievement. 
And it's a whole nother talk. And in fact, I gave that talk about a year ago here. And so we won't dwell on it. But the idea is like we as Christians, we don't like fuzzy areas. We like bright line rules. Well, tell me, is it right or wrong? Should I do achievement or not? It's so much easier to live with a bright line rule. Fine, I'll just cut it out. I just won't do it. You know, just, you know, a pause-based life is good. Achievement-based life, that's worldly, that's bad. And, and that's not, that is not what Ecclesiastes teaches. He said, look, you can base your life on either. You can turn either one of them into a little idol and worship that and base your life on it. Neither one of them is what you should be basing your life on. Let's talk about a pleasure-based life. Actually, Mike, got it good. Okay, go ahead. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He says, come now, I'll I will test you with pleasure. So he's already tried achievement. He's already tried causes. Now he's going to try turning himself to pleasure. What are the points? What, what can we learn here? Pleasure, just like achievement and causes, fails on its own terms. Doesn't fail in my terms. Doesn't fail in your terms. You'll always look at someone else and the way they enjoy life and what they do in their free time, their hobbies. You say, well, that's, that's stupid. It's what I would, that's what I wouldn't do, right? Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Why do they do that? But pleasure doesn't fail in your terms or my terms. It fails on its own terms. And here's an important distinction. What he's not saying is that pleasure, he's not saying, you know, pleasure, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. So he's not saying, yeah, um, and hedonism is the uh, notion that uh, it's the opposite of hedonism. It's we say, I just don't find this stuff that pleasurable anymore. And he's not saying, I've, I've been there, I've had it all, I got the castle, I've got the, the harem, I've got all this stuff, and you know, it's not that great. He's not saying that. I met a guy, I, there, I, think, I think in this, I'd be a little careful about this, because I think in this Bible study, there are some current or former Ferrari owners, okay? So, but I met a guy, ran into, just a, a, within the last year, I ran into a partner at my old, one of my old law firms in New York City. And I said, hey, I heard you own a Ferrari. He said, yeah, which one? I said, oh, so you have more than one? He says, yeah, I got 11. 11 Ferraris, where do you, I mean, you live in Manhattan, where do you keep them? I got a garage in Connecticut. Do you drive them like now and again? Yeah, whatever. Anyway, the conversation had exactly that tone to it. You know, the first Ferrari was exciting. It was new. The second one, well, yeah, okay. But by the 11th one. And so you could hear Solomon saying that you could say the message of Ecclesiastes is this pleasure, but just won't, it won't be that great. And you can probably find celebrities now. You just find some news stories. Say, say there's a celebrity. They had it all. They had the yacht. They had the, all this stuff. They said, yeah, it's not that great. And if you think that's the message, you'll distinguish it from yourself. And you'll say, Give, I'll try the yacht. I'll try, I'll try one of the Ferraris. If you don't like it, I'll try it. Right? Because yeah, you can find another celebrity that says, you know what's great? Flying private. Private jet is great. 
You'll find someone else who loves the pleasure. You say, well, that guy didn't like it, but I would like it. So that's not, that's not the message. He's not saying it's not great. It's fine. It's great. It's just not a way to build your life on. And the reason is this. He said, I've already tried a cause-based life and achievement-based life. And what I found is that I had this naggy voice in the back of my head that kept talking and kept saying, it's pointless. It's pointless. It's pointless. And so achievement didn't do it. And it's still, it's pointless. It's pointless. And a cause-based life, I'll try that. It's pointless. It's pointless. That little voice in his head. So you know what I'll do? I'll drown out that voice with pleasure. I'll get so much pleasure. I don't hear that voice anymore. And he tries all this pleasure. And that's the key to understanding this section. The phrase, in all this, my wisdom stood by me. You might read it at first and say, your wisdom stood by you. It sounds like what you're doing is pretty foolish. But what it means is he says, in all that pleasure, that voice kept coming out. My wisdom stood by me. It's pointless. It's pointless. It's pointless. And what I found is that you can get all the pleasure. There's not enough pleasure to drown out that voice. It can't be done. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to drown that out and say, I could find meaning in, in this. Can't be done. There's another verse just like this. Chapter three, verse nine. He has said eternity in the human heart. That's what he concluded. But in all this, my wisdom stood by me. You can't get enough pleasure to drown out the notion that life is meaningless. Now, before we go on, just like there's a little Christian confusion in our world about achievement, there's a lot of Christian confusion about pleasure. Bill Long, we were in a Bible study together years ago, CLC group. You might remember this discussion. We had a unit there on wealth and money. And uh, I brought in an article from Tony Campolo. Um, Tony Campolo is a famous Christian author and speaker in the 80s and 90s. And he had this article. The title of the article was, Would Jesus Drive a BMW? And for today, maybe we'll say, would Jesus drive a Ferrari? And so we had an engaging discussion, as you recall, maybe maybe call about that. Would Jesus drive a BMW? So first blush, a lot of guys say, oh, no. No, the answer is flat on no. Of course not. Of course he would. And people say, no, no, wait, not. He could, I could see that. I mean, if the BMW is, you know, a good investment and it doesn't appreciate and you could, you could always drive people to Bible study, right? So all those arguments are utilitarian arguments, right? I say, if it's functional utilitarian or spiritual in some way, then it's okay. Okay, I said, what, what if you just enjoy the BMW? And then I said, here's a follow-up question for you. Can a Christian eat an ice cream cone? I got the same response in the Bible study. Of course. Wait, come on, of course. No, wait, think about it. Could Jesus drive a convertible? Would Jesus go to the beach on vacation and lay in the sun for a week? See, the question itself was a setup because we all imagine Jesus as being very focused, very ministry focused. He was serious. He was he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was very focused on his ministry, right? And so, no, he wouldn't go lay in the sun for a week and he wouldn't drive around in a convertible, let alone a convertible Ferrari. Can't imagine Jesus would never do that. So, okay, so maybe there is no Christian rationale for pleasure. Can a Christian eat an ice cream cone? Sure. Why do you say yes? What's the Christian rationale for pleasure? And the answer comes befuddled. It's, uh, you know, I, I, it's small. It's small. It's 50 cents. That's why. But it's not principled. It's just small. So look, the Christian world has had confusion about this for 2,000 years. We have swung back and forth to asceticism. People say, you're right. You're right. It's fraught with peril. Pleasure is fraught with peril. Let's just get rid of it. Let's get, that's the whole basis for the monastic movement. Let's just be, all be monks, live in monasteries, get rid of pleasure, renounce all worldly things. And you swing the other way. That's the prosperity gospel. God wants you to go first class. 
I remember seeing one guy say, he held up the Bible and he said, this whole book says God wants you to be happy. That's a prosperity gospel. Let's swing the other way, right? That's a pendulum. But most of us live in this befuddled middle where we say, I don't, look, I don't really know. I don't really know if God thinks pleasure is okay, but I don't want to live like a monk. So I'm going to sneak in the ice cream cone once in a while. I'm not really sure I should, but I'm just going to do it. And that's a confusion about is pleasure okay? I, okay, I guess not, but I, I just can't. I, I'm going to have to do it anyway. And that's where, honestly, most of us live. So today, I'll see, I think Ecclesiastes speaks to that. Maybe we can learn something from that and all these other things too. So let's talk about the solution. The solution. The solution is a pure gospel solution. This is the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. And I'll read this one. This is chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, here's where we interpret scripture with scripture. Is he preaching universal salvation? See, God has already approved the works of everybody. Yes, early in the book, I said there's judgment, but when the judgment means God's just going to say it's all okay. Nobody, God is like Santa Claus. Nobody gets a lump of coal, right? Is that what he's preaching? No. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This verse is for us believers. So it's not universalistic salvation. Again, interpret scripture with scripture. But to those of us who believe you've been washed with the blood of Christ, go your way for God has already approved your works. And it brings up two great Christian doctrines that are governed by the gospel. The first is standing. We talked about this here before. We say you might feel like a two out of 10. You might feel on a good day like a six out of 10. But in God's eyes, you are always, since the day you accepted Christ, a 10 out of 10. In his eyes, you are a 10. Your standing is complete. God has already approved your works. And substitution. It's, they're not your works. When God looks at you, all of your works, all of your filthy, rotten sin has been moved to Jesus. And all of his righteous works have been moved to you. It's the great exchange. It's, the, it's pure gospel. Right here in Ecclesiastes, God has approved your, when he says, I look at you and I look at all your works, I'm looking at all the works of Christ transferred to you. You know what I see? A 10 out of 10. Your standing is complete. Go your way for God has already approved your works. So if that's true, if that's true, go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Now, again, let's interpret scripture with scripture. Does that mean I can go get drunk? No. Does that mean I can have a harem? No. Absolutely not. Right, you got to see. I'm not going to do anything immoral. Like I'm not going to break any of the. the I'm not going to break any of the commandments. I'm not going to do immoral things to get pleasure. But in terms of just, just look, life is filled with a lot of suffering. Life is so filled with a lot of really bad days. Jesus said in Matthew six, each day has enough trouble of its own. We have lots and lots of sermons. You've all heard lots of sermons on suffering, the Christian approach to suffering. How many sermons have you heard in the Christian approach to pleasure? Is it okay to eat an ice cream cone? Can I do that? Yes. Now, don't eat 20 a day and it's not good for you. <laughs> like, that's not get crazy. But is it okay to enjoy life? Some days, you know, the sun shines. It just feels warm on your skin. Your debts are paid off. Your kids are all right. Some days are okay. 
And it's really okay to enjoy life. And I love it. It was on. Let your clothes be white all the time, not dark in the morning. Enjoy life. You didn't hear me the first time. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. It's really okay. Don't do anything immoral. But it's really okay to enjoy life. And then the kicker, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Achieve great things. Live for great causes. Fight for those causes. That's fine. But you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to base your life on them. You don't have to look to those things to be your justification. You have to say, my life has meaning and I'm worthwhile because I achieve these great causes. You're free from all that because he's already approved your works. You already have, your life's already justified. You're already free from all that stuff. You say, you know, in that case, I can fight for this cause. I don't need to have it to feel worthwhile by myself. I don't need to have it to find meaning. I don't need to have it to find purpose. I've already got all that I need in him because he's already approved my works. Therefore, I am so much freer to achieve great things in this world. I don't have to have them. That's the gospel. Now, there's another part of the conclusion, but in chapter 12, he uses the words conclusion, right? So chapter 12, verse, verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. So that is a plug for this Bible study to be in the word and reading the word every week. That's why we're here. So we encourage you not just to come and listen, but to read the word every week before the days come when you say, I have no delight in them. But in chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And I'm going to go back to Keller, because Keller spent one of those nine sermons on Ecclesiastes. He spent about 25 minutes on those two words, fear God. He said, and to summarize, the distinction is this. He doesn't end the book and say, keep the commandments. That would just be like any other religion. Be good. Be moral. He says, fear God and keep the commandments. And, you, and as most of us know, fear God has two different meanings. One is you can fear, you could cower in fear of harm to yourself. It's kind of a self-centered fear. But fear God, when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that is an awe and a reverence for God. And not just an awe and a reverence for his power that he could crush me like a bug. It's an honor reverence for his love and his mercy and his grace and his substitutionary atonement for me. So if I'm in awe of what he's done for me and I'm in awe of his grace and his mercy, as much as I'm in awe of his power, I say, Lord, in light of that, I want to keep all your commandments. And that brings up another wonderful gospel principle, that sequence. He has saved me. And I I, I have been accepted, therefore I obey, not I obey so that I can be accepted. Those are my comments, prepared remarks on Ecclesiastes. Let's stop here now, open up for some conversation, questions, and then we'll turn a little bit to Song of Psalms. Doug, we got one right here in the, in the front row. Going back to uh, your presentation uh, under C, you made a comment, and I believe it's from the scriptures, That's that about wisdom standing by me. Yes. No matter what that voice the professor death. did, that voice was still there. Right. Okay, my, my question is, and maybe this is part of my uh, criticism of people, why... Does it appear that some people don't have any wisdom at all to stand be, by them in their thinking process, in what they're doing, whatever? 
because I look at myself and this sort of applies to me that in the background, I have this thing that is telling me that's not the thing to do or whatever. But it seems to me that not everybody has that. And my guess, my question is why? Yeah. Well, I'm going to let Pat answer that. <laughs> My name's Pat. Thank you, Pat. And I'm a Christian. Hi, Pat. And Doug, the, re the reason or the answer to your question is that in our modern life, and Ecclesiastes speaks to, I think, our modern times much more so than it probably did in Solomon's time is the loss of purpose, or as a philosopher might say, the loss of teleology. Aristotle spoke of a final cause, the purpose for which a thing or being is. We don't have that in science. We just reduce everything to a mathematical formula so that a scientist sits at a physical table in a laboratory with beakers and tells us the only thing that really exists are swirling atoms in some quantum uncertain universe. And yet they write all this on a computer, physical objects. So we have confused the blueprint for the edifice. It's the same thing. Biological sex no longer has any meaning. A man can be a woman, a woman can be a man, you can be non-binary or however many binaries you wanna be. And it runs throughout culture. It's not just the existentialists. It's, it's many books have been written by postmodernists who tell us there is no meaning in life. And I always want to say, then shut up and quit writing. <laughs> but that's that is the sickness of our modern culture is we have lost the sense of meaning. And, you know, I think it's Westminster Confession or the, the classic confession. What is the purpose of man? The purpose of man is to love, know and glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right. You start there and everything starts to fall into place. Hey, Doug, I think part of the answer to your question is Ecclesiastes, because the conclusion out of, from commentators that I've read, the conclusion out of Ecclesiastes is God is con in control of everything. And for you to identify meaning in life, purpose in life and enjoyment in life is to recognize that. And so the people that you're talking about that are different than you or different than someone else, that's all God's creation. Why he has created that way, maybe he'll answer that someday. But it's his pleasure to create in the way that he has because it's perfection. What we're looking at, we don't see it that way, but what we're looking at is perfection. What God has done is perfect and everything he's done is perfect. We don't know the answers to all the whys, but we can look to him as being the author of everything. And that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to understand. So I want to add a couple of other things. Yeah, the presentation was excellent, Jim, but the word that is commonly used in the Hebrew, I'm maybe not pronouncing it right, is hovel, which is used. Let's say the word again. Hovel, H-A-V-E-L. So that's what's translated meaningless or purposeless. But what it really means in the Hebrew is life is very difficult to grasp onto. So the 
so the metaphors that are often used is it's like trying to grab the wind and hold on to it or trying to grab smoke or a vapor and hold on to it. That's what life is like. It doesn't it's not simply that it has no meaning. It's that it cannot be grasped. You as a human being cannot hold on to life. And he proves that in two places in the text. Chapter three, the first part of it is all about time. You have no control over time. And that's what he's trying to tell you. So that's one of the reasons why life cannot be held on to. Time is always moving and you have no control. At the end, chapter 11 and 12, second one, which Jim pointed out, is death. You have no control over it. It comes to everyone. So life is hard to hold on to, difficult to hold on to because of time, because of death. But then you recognize two things. Number one, God is in control of everything. And so you look to him. And then the second thing is the very end of chapter 12, God will judge every act. That is our hope because we know who he is and his character, his perfection, his righteousness, his mercy and his love will judge every act of every person that's ever been alive that will stand before him. And that's the hope of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's a fairly long book, but the entire book is summed up in two, in two verses at the very end. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then 14th talks about our accountability to God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And our, the entire meaning of our lives is based upon our relationship with God. It's what gives meaning, and it's what gives us purpose, and it's what gives us the knowledge of his life and love. Yeah, that's great. So if I could just respond to Doug on this question, why doesn't the voice, prior to getting ready for this, Bob Mosteller, we were texting each other different popular songs, because this theme does come up a lot, right? So uh, there's a song by John Mayer, it says, it's called Something's Missing. He says, I've got the money, I've got the fame, I've got the guitar, I've got everything, I've got, he says, I got women and all that other stuff. He said, but something's missing, something's missing, something's missing. And that theme keeps coming again and again in popular culture. You know, Pat, you're talking about books and plays and all the rest, but another pop music. Neil Diamond, you remember a song called I Am I Said? Remember from years ago? I'm, I am lost and I can't even say why. Uh, there's a song by Simon and Garfunkel called America. He's on a bus ride with a girl named Kathy. And he said, we're riding together. And at one point of the song, he says, Kathy, I'm lost. I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm aching and empty and I don't know why. And other, other songs, so there's general recognition, like life is without purpose, but to really act on it and come to Christ, you got to admit two things. And there's the two great sins that keep people from doing it. People say the two great sins. I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. And no one but no one tells me what to do. So to act on it, I've got to admit I'm a sinner and I've got to, to, to any grace and I've got to come under someone's authority and I am not doing that. I don't know. Life has no purpose, but I'm not doing that. So that's the conflict. Sorry, that's my quick comment on that. But we have another hand back here. Yes. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, Jesus said, I think it's uh, Luke 11, that he's greater than Solomon. You have to keep that in mind, right? Because this is the wisdom of the world. This is a wisdom of a man who didn't end well. OK, but he had a lot of wisdom. No question about it. Right. The queen of the south came to Solomon for his wisdom. Now, you know, what's the meta narrative for us or the paradigm for us? It's to promote the gospel. Right. 
That's what our lives are about. That's our purpose is to worship God. Jesus is ruling and reigning now at the right hand of God in heaven. So we as men, what's our purpose? It's simple. We as Christians, we further the gospel. How do we do that? We pray, we witness, we work, we succeed, we achieve, we enjoy, we rejoice. All those things. God has given every one of those things to us. And we know that if sickness comes, financial difficulties come, whatever comes, whatever barriers, whatever uh, circumstances in our lives, we are more than overcomers through Christ and our hope is in heaven. So, you know, we, we look at it that way. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't rejoice uh, without hope. We have great hope, right? Right. Now, Rex. This is Rex the lesser, Rex the greater speaking here. So. Um, as, as you were going, I was thinking um, of the verse where, where Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Yeah. And, and it's not about getting stuff or the name it, claim it. It's about knowing that with him as your base, you can let go of all the other stuff. Yeah. And I think so many people come to Christ. Some come to Christ when they lose it all. Some come to Christ when they get what it, oh, they think yeah, is satisfaction. That's right. And they don't. And that's what you see here. That's the gift of dissolution. This is what you see in Solomon. He got it all. Right. And he said, this is not this is not what I thought it was going to be. That's right. That's right. And that's why Christ says, I came that you may have life and life abundantly. That's great. That's exactly right. I, I like the three paths, you know, achievement, cause, pleasure. Yes. And, and they all lead nowhere. But I do want to say that in chapter five, at the very end, it says, moreover, when God gives any man wealth of possessions, when God gives them and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is a gift of God. Yes. There it is. Yes. I mean, yes. And that kind of phraseology that comes up again and again, actually, in Ecclesiastes, but it's a gift of God. So it means if you have if you have the Lord in him, then you can enjoy these things and do these things and achieve these things and accomplish these things. Exactly. But in him first. All right. Let's spend a few minutes on Song of Songs. Just this will be four, maybe three or four minutes. Song of Songs, a love story. There are different ways to interpret it. It's all in the first person. Here's one interpretation. I'm not sure this is the right one, but this is one I thought was interesting. It was girl meets boy, girl separated from boy, girl meets king, king likes girl, girl resists king, girl reunited with boy. How interesting. But if you read it, you say, okay, what is this doing in the Bible? And there are two basic camps on Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. One is that it's literal. It is only literal. It is not allegorical. It is purely literal. It's just a love story. That's it. Nothing else, nothing more. Don't read anything else into it. And the people who take this as, and that approach that this is literal are adamant that it should not be read allegorically. And there's actually, with reading the commentary, it's like almost like animosity between them. And it's almost like the people who live who are in the literal in the literal camp are saying, reading any passage of the Bible allegorically is fraught with peril because you are going to start saying, well, the flood was just an allegory or the creation was just an allegory. And where's it going to end? It's like a slippery slope fear. So no, stop it. It's just a love story. That's it. Okay. Then why is it in the Bible? Well, they say, well, it's there to tell us that romantic love is okay. And sex between a man and a woman within marriage is okay. 
it's really okay. And even if that is all it is, that is kind of unique because, and I remember, I remember hearing this uh, a long time ago and I had to look it up and I said, yeah, it's true. You can actually Google it and find lots of articles that say this, that romantic love has been around for a long time. So this wasn't new, but romantic love wasn't really associated with marriage until a couple hundred years ago. People will say, oh, sure, I feel romantic feelings. They're just not associated with marriage. I marry for property. I marry for position. I marry for, you know, bring kings together, whatever it is. And then you have romantic feelings. Okay, they're not, those two things don't go together. And so if that's true, then this is groundbreaking. Like I would say, oh, I want them to go together within marriage, okay? Enjoy life with a woman who you love. And there's a proverb that says, enjoy life with a wife of your youth. So God's saying, I want romance and marriage to be connected not like they're, and it took the world thousands of years to catch up with that idea. So that's kind of interesting. But that's the literal view. The other view is allegorical. And this is this has traditionally been the view. In Jewish tradition, it's always been thought of as a love story, but basically a love story between God and his people. And in Christian tradition, this is Christ, the bridegroom, and us, the church, the bride. And so when I was a kid in Sunday school, we'd say, he lifts me up on his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. And we would go through the motion. So those are verses from Song of Solomon. Right. We're saying those apply to God and his love for me, Christ, the bridegroom and us, the, the, the bride and his love for us. It's the allegory that relates to that. So if that's true. And if that's the way you read this, then you say, well, how do I, it's all about God's love affair with us. And you need to be lovesick for him. How can you be lovesick for him? Because he is lovesick for us. To read this book, and you say, wow, this is like God is gushing emotion. So if you feel in your Christian life, like God tolerates me, he puts up with me. Well, you forgive him, but you know, you didn't amount to much, right? Uh, if that's the way you feel, you know, you read Song of Solomon and say, God is infatuated with you. God loves us. The love is gushing. It's a very different way of understanding your relationship with God. That's all I wanted to say about Song of Solomon. <laughs> Any comments, thoughts? In many ways, the Song of Solomon is the answer to the question raised by the professor in Ecclesiastes. Oh, for at the end, it's love is as love is as strong as death. It's jealousy cannot be quenched. So we can find meaning, purpose in life through our love of God and then loving one another or loving. That is one way we love God yeah. is we are faithful to the to the bride of your youth, your you, you love your family, et cetera. Because that is the purpose for us. That's correct. So I think the two of them read together is a good way to approach it. That's good. I wasn't making the connection. That's great. Pat. Let's close. Prayer. Dave, would you mind closing a prayer for us? Sure. Father, uh, we come before you as men uh, today, uh, eager to do your will and bring you glory and honor and praise. As we learned today, uh, it's really all about you, Father. And we just want to connect up to you and uh, bring you that glory and honor and praise. I continue to pray for our country and what's going on in this world. And I just pray that it be your will and you be glorified, Father. Help us to go out today and bring you glory and honor and praise. Thank you for Jim and for everybody here today. In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need 
of God's grace. See you next time.